This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Dom Cook, and today we're breaking down the PGA Tour. Alongside the four standalone majors, the PGA Tour is the pinnacle of professional golf. It's where the best players in the world earn their living and tiered up for their place in golfing history. To break down the business behind the stars and action you see on the PGA Tour, I'm joined by Neil Schuster, co-founder of golf media business, No Laying Up. A quick editor's note before this episode. This conversation was recorded before the field for this week's inaugural Live Golf Invitational event was announced. Neil, I'm really excited for today's episode. I think it's a perfect moment to explore the PGA Tour. It seems like all eyes are on golf at the moment. We're in the middle of major season, but also two rival golf leagues are challenging the PGA Tour's position as the most important golf organization in the world. Neil, welcome to Business Breakdowns. First time caller, long time listener. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Uh, I like the breakdowns you guys have done in the past. I appreciate it. A joining of worlds for me. I've been a long time listener of No Laying Up. So I think the right place to start today is with a really basic summary of what the PGA Tour is and importantly, what it isn't. Any measure of its size, how many people watch the tour, how much money does it make would be perfect to kick this conversation off. The PGA Tour in its current form is a 501c6 nonprofit organization. It's an exclusive membership organization of professional golfers. Their mandate is to basically run golf tournaments and provide their members, which are tour players who have a PGA Tour card, as they call it, as many opportunities to play competitive golf and win money from those tournaments. I guess if you boiled it down, the real value of the tour is when a tour member becomes a member, they sign away their media rights. And so if a player is going to play in a competitive golf tournament, especially one that is televised or videoed, which we've had experience with this, they have to get a release from the tour. And so that's really where the money comes from is that they are then able to take those collective media rights from all the players and they are able to go to broadcast partners and sell those rights, exclusive rights. So NBC, CBS, and now ESPN with the digital rights, Sky Sports over across the pond for you and then some other stuff internationally. So they're able to to almost pool all those collective media rights and generate a ton of value for that, which they just signed a new rights deal that went into effect this year and will go through, I think, 2030. The number there is reported to be 60 to 70% higher than it was over the previous term, which ended last year. So estimates put that at $700 million a year across all of those partners. And then the other thing they're able to do is basically market the players. So the core mandate is to run professional golf tournaments provide the broadcasting rights for those, but it doesn't end on the course. They're also tasked with growing the players, their brands, I guess is the word that a lot of people use off the course. So whether that's equipment partners or what they call OMPs, official marketing partners. So those are Morgan Stanley with Justin Rose. Morgan Stanley is a title sponsor of the Players' Championship. They have to spend a set amount of money with players to sponsor players off the course. The PGA Tour kind of claims some of that and they pass it along to certain players. So that's kind of a general overview of how they make money right now. And if we get into the history a little bit, there's a lot there. You know, there's been a few schisms over the years of if the tour is overstepping, because it reminds me a little bit of the business breakdown you guys did on Universal Music Group, where 
the problem that Tor has is because they're a member-run organization, they can't play favorites with members. They're basically a trade organization. So their members are independent contractors. They're not employees. And so they can basically only reward the players, for the most part, via competitive incentives. It's very black and white. So that's why if you play good, you win money. If partners want to work with a player, the PGA Tour will facilitate that, but they're not supposed to play favorites. So what happens is some of the top players, the guys that move the needle, Rory, John Rahm, Tiger, Phil, probably don't get rewarded as much as some of the guys that play in their wake and are making millions of dollars a year. And you know nobody knows their name or what they look like. It reminds me again with Taylor Swift and Universal Music Group, where some of these top artists, they have to renegotiate their contract because they're basically subsidizing some of the other artists on the label. One of the things that I always really enjoyed about your show, and you do it less recently, but more historically, has been kind of this concept of the tiger tax. Tiger is one of the most well-paid sportsmen ever to have played any kind of sport. But your contention, and what some people would say is he's still underpaid relative to what he has given back to the game. Can you just give us a framing of the tiger tax and what you really mean by that? And then we can get into the history. One of my associates here at No Laying Up, Big Randy, my guy wrote a post for us years ago called the Tiger Tax. And basically what happened was Tiger came on tour, I believe in 96, 97, everyone knows the Masters. He blew the field away, blew away like every record in golf's most prestigious event, which it's worth noting is not run by the PGA Tour, but is a PGA Tour sanctioned partner. That led to this influx of sponsor money and attention and more fans. And so the ratings grew. With the ratings growing, more sponsors wanted to be a part of it. And so the tour was able to renegotiate broadcast rights. And that deal jumped, doubled or tripled it. It went up in a big way. And so from that windfall, all the prize money went up year over year over year. And so I think the first PGA Tour player to make a million dollars in one year was Curtis Strange in 1988, I believe. And then in, I guess, 94, which is middle ground, but pre-Tiger, the largest purse was $506,000. I think it was the tour championship. If you fast forward, over 125 guys made over a million dollars on the PGA Tour, which is mind-blowing. And the largest purse this year is the Players' Championship, which is the PGA Tour's flagship event that they actually run, own, operate out of their headquarters in Ponte Vedra. And that total purse was $20 million, with the winner, Cam Smith, getting $3.6 million. So between that 94 and 2022 this year, those purses have just consistently gone up and there's been a big jump from last year to this year. A lot of that has to do with the competition from some upstarts, which we'll probably get into in a little bit. Let's go there now because I think the history is really fascinating because it rhymes very much with the present day. So maybe take us back in time to when the PGA Tour was founded and then take us through the key moments that bring us up to date today. It's, I think, worth noting that golf as an industry worldwide is very fragmented. You have the USGA and the RNA in the UK that are kind of the governing bodies. So they create the rules of golf. They were kind of the original golf organizations. They kind of run a lot of the amateur golf. And so the PGA Tour has a relationship with them. The US Open is run by the USGA. In 1895, I believe the PGA, so the Professional Golfers Association of America was founded. And so that's when pro golf started. And up until 1968, the PGA of America, which runs the PGA Championship, which is actually happening at Southern Hills in Oklahoma, as we're recording, and the PGA Tour, the touring professionals split. So there was a schism. The top players were getting very frustrated that they were subsidizing a lot of club professionals. So the split now is you have club professionals. So at your local municipal course or country club, there is a PGA Tour head pro, and there's probably some assistant pros. 
those guys run and operate the pro shop and run the golf at those institutions. And back in the 50s and 60s, a lot of the money for both PGA Tour pros and for PGA professionals came through pro shops. It was club sales, shirts, golf fees, things like that. Then in the 50s, that's kind of when Arnold Palmer came on the scene. He basically invented brand marketing for athletes. Golf started to be televised. And that's when PGA Tour, like the top tier professionals, let's say the top 50 guys, there started to be a little bit more money in playing, but the rules of competition hadn't really changed. So up until I think 1965, whether you were number one in the world or number you know 1,000, everybody had to Monday qualify into tournaments, <laughs> which is crazy because in golf, a lot of pros can get hot for a round. And so the top guys separate themselves with consistency. In the PGA Championship, it wasn't a guarantee that Jack Nicklaus would be in it. He still had to Monday qualify in. So they started to change some of these rules in the mid-60s, but the top professionals, so Nicholas and Billy Casper and Palmer were all very upset. And they basically said, we're going to break away. We're going to start the American Professional Tour APT or something like that and said, we need more control over the competition of professional golf. And so it kind of came to a head in 1968. And the PGA of America ceded to the top pros and they created the Tournament Players Division, which was the early formation of the PGA Tour as it is now. And they created a mandate and it said that the tour will be run by a commissioner, an independent commissioner. There'll be a board of four players and then an independent board of, I think, five people. And they hired Joe Dye, who was, I think, at the USGA or a former USGA commissioner or head of the USGA to be the first tour commissioner in 69 through 74. And that kind of was the original formation. And that mandate is actually in effect to this day. And so from there, things stay pretty mellow until 74. And Joe Dye is succeeded by Dean Beeman. As people like to say, he was a great player in his own right. He had won a bunch on tour. He's a former player. And he came in and grew the tour assets from 730K in 74 to over 200 million when he retired in 1993. So Beeman was, there's a great book about him by Adam Shupek called Dean Beeman, Golf's Driving Force. His whole thesis when he took over as commissioner was, Golf is wildly undervalued. We're not marketing top-tier golfers properly. We're not monetizing it properly with broadcast partners. So he worked with Rune Artledge at ABC and Wide World of Sports and really worked on the television stuff. And he was the first guy to start bringing in PGA Tour like official marketing partners. So National Rent-A-Car and I think Cruise Liners. And so over that period from 74 to 80, a few of the key things that he did was, like I said, he ramped up marketing. He also started the PGA Tour Pension program, which is known to be the by far the best in pro sports. So we can get into that in a little bit because it's pretty interesting and just created a lot more value around the PGA Tour as an entity. He also moved the PGA Tour to its current headquarters in Ponte Vedra. So TPC Sawgrass enlisted Pete Dye, the famous architect to design it. The story is that he bought the land for $1 because it was kind of nasty, swampy area and they built the stadium course. Now that the tour also owns and operates 30 other tournament playing courses. If you see the title TPC River Highlands, TPC Craig's Ranch, these are all courses around the country, around the world that PGA Tour has an interest in and ownership. Some they operate fully, some they just own or license their name to. But in 83, there was actually another, I guess you could call it schism, where the top players again got upset because they felt like the tour and Dean Beeman specifically was overstepping their mandate, which was 
Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas and some of the other top guys were developing their own brands. So Golden Bear, Arnold Palmer with his umbrella. Palmer's a spokesman for Hertz rent a car. Well, the PGA Tour had just signed National as the official rental car company. So they were worried that the PGA Tour was going to cannibalize some of their personal sponsorships and their brands. But that was where it was reaffirmed that the tour is going to be responsible for marketing the game of golf, but also bringing sponsors to players directly, which is what you're seeing in the current format. So then you fast forward a little bit into 1994. Dean Beeman was succeeded by Tim Fincham. And Beeman went back and he actually qualified for the Open Championship in the 80s while he was commissioner. Lives here in Jacksonville. He's apparently still a great player in his own right. I would say a true menace, a true steward of the game. But Fincham was more of a, some have called him a company man. I think he was a lobbyist in DC. So he had some political connections. And so right when he came on the scene, there was another attempt at a breakaway with a name that probably seen pop up recently, Greg Norman. The shark tried to create the World Golf Tour. And his thing was that there are too many tournaments. And for international players specifically, everything is US-based. And why don't we do eight to 10 big tournaments with massive you know, million-dollar purses? Again, at the time, the largest purse was $506,000. Let's reward the top players. So these will be like no-cut events with the top 40 or top 60 in the world. And we're all going to play for big money eight to 10 times a year. So that was a threat to the tour, and Fincham was able to fight that off. He then kind of stole Norman's ideas and created the World Golf Championships, or the WGCs, which are a way that the tour is able to reward the top players. Those are no-cut events. There used to be more of them. They're kind of scaling some of those back, but they're no-cut events for the top 60, meaning all you got to do is show up and hit a tee shot, and the last place guy gets 30K or 60K or whatever it is. And so that rewards the guys that have played the best over the last year or two the highest in the official world golf rankings and a way to make sure that they are being rewarded. Fincham. So he also made it a very clear point to highlight that the tour's main goal, other than getting its members as many competitive starts and opportunities to play golf as possible, is that each tournament has to have a charity centerpiece, charity component. And that's big because the tours come under fire for being a nonprofit. And we can dig into that a little bit. And was it Dean Berman before him that had changed the structure from a for-profit entity into a non-profit, this charity model that they still run today? Yes, that's exactly right. And that was big. So the tour, it's been reported by ESPN. They did a big outside the lines piece in 2013 that the tour saves 10 to $20 million a year by not paying taxes. And so their argument is that we pass that along to charity partners. I think in the 80s and 90s, they might've gotten away from that messaging that as well as they should. And I think Fincham saw around the corner with some of that and said, we need to make this a centerpiece. But a lot of the charities is run through the tournaments. It gets a little gray because what the tour raises in actual charity on their books is much lower than what they claim at times, which they justified in doing because they're saying, hey, our tournaments generated hundreds of millions of dollars for charity. Or over the past 20 years, I think it's 2 or $3 billion. What they're actually putting on their books is a lot less than that. So people have argued whether they should be a nonprofit. But Again, I digress. So Fincham, his time in office coincides with Tiger. And he did a great job of continuing what Beeman was doing. And over the course of those broadcast renegotiations, monetizing the tour in a big way. So Fincham handed things off to Jay Monahan in 2017. And the PGA Tour has placed a focus, I think, recently on one, expanding internationally. So you'll see those tournaments in what they call the wraparound season. The 2022 season started in 2021 in the fall. 
There's the tournaments in China. There's tournaments in Mexico. So they're trying to grow the presence internationally. Again, they're trying to continue to up the purse size and make sure that the top players don't feel the need to go to a rival tour. That's a really, really helpful summary, both of the history and just where we are today. And just before we go on to the business model itself, because as you say, a lot of the tours issues today stem from the business model that has worked quite well for them for many years, but they almost count the new upstart leagues are kind of counter-positioned against the tours model. And we'll see how that plays out. But just in terms of how the commissioner, the player advisory council and the outside board members operate together, how does that work? Since the tour is a member-run organization, If players want change, they can vote on it. So the player advisory council would take it to the players. They would vote. They would bring it to the PGA Tour. Over the course of the PGA Tour's lifetime, I think the players get very, very focused on the task at hand, which is, I just want to go work on my golf game. It's working for me. And there hasn't been a ton of competition. But technically, it is a member-run organization. So if the players, like in 1983, if they want to make changes and they can rally support from their colleagues... That's possible. But the tour has been successful in fighting off those attempts at a breakaway. Rory McIlroy spoke really eloquently on your podcast about his job on that council. And a lot of the decisions he's having to make, he's not making for himself. He's making for the number 120 in the world who is part of the tour and has a very different mindset and interest in what happens as Rory McIlroy does. So I think now we've talked a lot around it. Let's dive into the business model itself. And maybe it's not even a business model because it's not necessarily a business, the PGA Tour. What I'm really interested first to discuss is the structure of how it works because they're members, not employees. They're also independent contractors. Then you have the commissioner and the PGA Tour itself. You've got these tournaments that they sanction and go to, but they don't necessarily run them. Talk to me through all the different stakeholders in the PGA Tour and how they fit together. Again, back to their mandate. Their goal is to get their members as many starts or opportunities to make money as possible. The business model is rooted in broadcasting golf. So they have the exclusive rights to broadcast their members. And then from those broadcast rights, that brings in sponsors. And then they can use those sponsors to both fund the telecast and then also help their players grow their profile, work with those partners. And so everybody wins as the game of golf is broadcast and promoted around the world. The tour hasn't been super transparent. So like officially their numbers, you can see up to 2019 as far as the economics of it. But they actually released a letter to players in December outlining the business model and the forecast for 2022. And this was reported by Eamon Lynch at Golf Week and some other golf riders in December. And the revenue breakdown, the total forecasted revenue for the tour in 2022 is $1.52 billion. And so again, that's a forecast, but it breaks down to about 660 million is tournament related revenue so that comes from title sponsors and official marketing partners of the PGA Tour 634 million of that is domestic and international media rights revenue I mentioned it earlier but they just signed a new rights deal that went into effect this year and that's estimated at around 700 million a year that's up from 400 million a year which was the reported number the last i think 10 years the previous deal so you can see they've grown even though that tiger impact isn't quite there. They're still able to almost double, or I guess raise the revenue by 60, 70% on the broadcast side. That makes up, I think, 85% of the tour's revenue or projected revenue for this year. And then the remaining 225 million, so I guess 25% of that comes from the TPC, the courses they own. And then they also have corporate and retail licensing deals. So PGA Tour Superstore is actually an independent entity. I think it's owned by Arthur Blank, who owns the Falcons but I'm sure the PGA Tour has a licensing agreement there. 
On top of that 1.5, though, that doesn't include an additional 400 million in non-discretionary, what they call pass-through revenue. Basically, 100 million of that is contractually required to flow to tournaments and charities as directed by the sponsors. So that's the pile of money that the tour passes through to help these independent tournaments run the tournament, make sure that it lives up to the standard of the PGA Tour. And if you go to a golf tournament, they are massive, massive undertakings. It's crazy infrastructure for the broadcast. It's stands, it's catering, it's all that stuff. But being a nonprofit also makes it a lot easier for them to enlist volunteer help, which we've been critical of in the past. They make the volunteers pay. (laughs) Some of that stuff is a little bit like, huh, with billions of dollars flying around, why are we doing that? And then a very interesting piece of this is 300 million of that additional pass-through revenue goes to media partners. So the broadcast partner, CBS, NBC, they pay, let's say $700 million, but then the tour has the tournament title sponsors and FedEx, they sponsor kind of the season long FedEx cup. They have to purchase, I think it's around 60, 70% of the commercial load. So there's a built-in advertising load to help the networks make money, make this a money-making opportunity. So that's almost like, I guess, revenue that's earmarked specifically to go straight to the broadcast and their broadcast partners. I think a really interesting part of this is how that business model and the way that they earn the money ends up shaping the tournaments and the golf that we watch as spectators. It would be much more fun to have more formats and styles of golf, but the pros tend to, or typically exclusively play, 72-hole stroke play events. So can you just explain the link of why that ends up happening and why as a fan that might not be the best thing for us? The reason for the 72-hole stroke play setup is it's very predictable. It's repeatable for the broadcast partner. You're usually guaranteed in that format to get the best players, the ones that are the most consistent over those four days. They're going to be the ones there on Sunday. So there's an event in March every year, the Dell Match Play. It's a world golf championship. So it's a no-cut event. And that's a match play bracket event. And the issue with match play is that they're all so good that somebody can get hot and John Rahm can get beat by Richard Bland. And no offense to Richard Bland, but John Rahm is the guy that moves the needle, right? So if there's match play, it can lead to a matchup between, uh, I don't know, Robert Garrigus and Richard Bland in the semifinals. That's not great for Dell because they're using this event as a way to entertain clients. It's not great for the telecast. I don't know how many people really want to tune into that versus John Rahm versus Rory on Sunday in kind of an 18-hole duel. So the tour has been very conservative with format because it just leads to the most consistent, predictable outcome and the best golf overall throughout the calendar. The other thing about golf recently, there's really no off season anymore. Basically, there's a golf tournament every week in some capacity. And so there's a little bit of oversaturation. And the example I'll use is F1. So F1 has, I think, 20 or 22 races a year, but there's a lot of you know off weeks. I think this week is an off week. We'll go two, three weeks where they won't race. And so it builds up a little bit of, I guess, scarcity in a way. And so because the tour has a golf event every week, not every event can be an elevated event. Not every event can be a major. And so there's a little bit of how do you keep all these sponsors happy and make sure that their ratings don't dip, but also not oversaturate and wear out the golf fan. Every tournament can't be equal. Let's now go on to the other side. They're making $1.5 billion of revenue this year, estimated to anyway. Interesting just to note that that's 10% of the NFL in terms of comparison of the two different sports. How are they paying that revenue out? Imagine the players get a fair chunk of that. How much and then who else is getting paid? 
Forecasted operating expenses are $716 million, and 75% of that goes towards tournament-related expenses. And then the other smaller piece of that goes to employee-related expenses, paying the commissioner, building their new core headquarters, the global home, things of that nature. That leaves $806 million available for player slash prize allocation. The tour actually has a reserve fund and they dipped into it this year, 32 million to help fund some of these player earning increases. And the deal, I guess, from a player's perspective is the player just turns up and plays, like we'll do everything for you. We'll host the tournaments, you come, you play, and you don't need to worry about anything else. And that's been the model for the tour, especially in the good times when there isn't rival competition, whatever you want to call it. The tour hasn't done a great job of communicating with players how much money they're paying out. So Phil Mickelson, who's been in the news a lot, had a quote back in the fall that the tour only pays out 26% of revenue to players. This is a disgrace. We need to be paid more. The tour vehemently denies that or responded by saying some of these numbers to the players. If you take that $838 million, that's 55% of money goes out to players. They're very adamant that one, that 26% number was wrong. And two, like we're doing a lot for you guys. I think when times are good though, and the players are just focused on their game, they're not asking a lot of questions. And the tour isn't really proactively messaging how much money they're doling out as far as prizes and and compensation goes. So you might see a bit more transparency going forwards. I think so. And I think that's a good thing. And when you look at the numbers, it's a really interesting business. It's unique in a lot of ways, but their goal, again, is to create as many opportunities for the players to play for big money, or in this case, big money as they can. One thing that dipped into that reserve fund, I think they had to dip into it for COVID because they had to make some tournaments whole back in 2020 when things got canceled. But I think Tim Fincham and Monaghan did a great job of building up that war chest. But now they're dipping into it to fight off some of these rivals a little bit. And so some notable purse increases, the FedEx Cup playoffs, that pool is up to 75 million with the winner getting 18 million. So that's up from 15 million, which Patrick Cantlay won last year. So the winner this year will get 18 million. The bonus pool is 75 million. As I said, the two events that lead up to the FedEx Cup championship, the BMW championship, and I think the FedEx St. Jude is now a playoff event. Those have both gone from 11 million total purse to I think 13 or 15 million. And then the players, which is a statement by the PGA tour because they run that event, they have made that the highest paying, largest purse in golf and in history, which is $20 million. And so Cam Smith won that was 3.6 million this year. So that's bigger than the Masters, the US Open, which has always traditionally been, I think, the largest purse and the PGA Championship. So they're kind of pushing the pace and saying, hey, this is what we have control over. Look what we're doing for you guys. Super interesting. And then if we lay on top that the best pension in sport, talk us through the origins of that and exactly how that works and why it's kind of unique for the charity or non-profit structure that the tour runs. Let me circle back to the pension because the other thing that they're doing with some of that player allocation money And as I mentioned earlier, the members are independent contractors, so they can't really play favorites, but they're finding ways to do it with trying to get official marketing partners to work directly with the players, but also they have a bunch of new incentive programs that they've rolled out. And so that kind of falls under this expense category as well. One of them that is in the news a lot, it's kind of funny, is the player impact program, the PIP, as they call it. Nobody knows how it's measured, but it's this proprietary algorithm (laughs) algorithm or formula for this $40 million, last year's $40 million, this year it'll be $50 million prize pool. And it's basically a measurement of who moves the needle with fans. So I think they're taking Nielsen ratings, comp score, clout scores. I guess they're taking into account some performance on the course. And they're saying, who are the top 10 fan favorites? 
Well, the poetic part of this is that Tiger Woods won the PIP last year. He won the $8 million first place prize. And after his car accident in February 2021, he didn't play golf. It's another way of the tour trying to reward the top guys of like, stick with us here. And also the guys that are interacting with fans and doing more to grow the game. There's a bunch of other ones. There's the FedEx Cup, which we've talked about. Then that's been around since I think 2007. That's always been an incentive program to reward the top players. We talked about the no-cut WGC events. The Comcast Business Top 10 is another season-long leaderboard that I'm not really sure how it's calculated, but we see it every week. There's the Aon Risk Reward Challenge, which is basically a hole gets picked every week. And whoever, I think, scores the best on it gets points. And then at the end of the year, the winner makes like a million bucks. And then there's, like I said, prize money bumps to these limited field events. And then there's another one that I'm curious about because it's not really incentive. I guess you could argue it's incentive-based, but it's start-based. So they're basically 50 for 15. So they're giving tour players just a flat 50K bonus if they play 15 events a year. The idea being like, we want more of our players to show up at these events and increase the strength of field and that creates a better product. Those are all the ways that they're trying to show the players like, hey, one, we're trying to give you guys opportunities to make more money. We're dipping into our reserves to do it. And two, they're trying to focus it around most of them, except maybe the last one, around how can I reward the top 10, top 20 in the world, the historically good players. Is the 50-15, is that purely the PGA Tour players or does that go down to Corn Ferry and some of the other tours that they operate? Good question. I don't know the answer to that. I would say it's probably tour card carrying tour members. It may go towards guys that have conditional status and stuff like that. I'm not totally sure about that. Because it's a really interesting dichotomy between the very top, which obviously moves the needle and is the incentive for everyone who wants to get into pro sport. There's a huge disparity, I guess, between those guys who are making a lot of money and everyone else. You know, on the Corn Ferry, you hear a lot of stories of people grinding really hard, as you were saying, to make it into the PGA Tour, which is not easy, and just making ends meet as they're having to travel across the different tournaments throughout the world just to kind of make a living. And so you have this massive difference that the tour is fighting on both ends. It's got one at the top, it's trying to play its players as much as it possibly can for those people who attract the marketing dollars and add dollars. And then at the bottom, it's just trying to keep or make sure that it pays out enough for these people to earn a living and be able to sustain themselves and their families. Yeah. It's about time we got to this famous pension. The best pension in sport. Talk me through it. So fun fact, over 600 pro golfers currently have more than $1 million in their retirement plans and some have significantly more. The basic overview is because tour players are considered independent contractors, the tour can't just do an employee-employer 401k. They can't just put money in a retirement account. They have to use a deferred compensation plan and it has to be incentive-based. So again, Mr. Beeman, Mr. Gansey came up with the two-cut program in the 1980s. Basically, there's two ways that PGA Tour players can make money. One is by making a cut at a tournament. So after 36 holes, half the field is cut. The more cuts you make, the more you're going to put in your retirement. So the fine print of that is as long as they play in 15 events and they make those cuts, I don't know if this number's changed, but $4,800 is deferred into their retirement account. And then each cut that they've made over those 15 starts, it doubles from there. So there's an incentive for them to play more. The other way, and this is a big reason that the FedEx Cup bonus FedEx Cup playoffs were created, is if they finish top 150 in the world, they get into the FedEx Cup bonus money plan. So this year, as I said earlier, the number one player, the, the FedEx Cup champion will get 18 million in prize. 1 million of that will be deferred to retirement income. So 17 million will be in cash and then 1 million will go into their retirement account. 
So golfers can then take their retirement after the age of 50 and the FedEx Cup bonus money they can start drawing from at age 45 or a year after they play in fewer than 15 PGA Tour or PGA Tour champion events. So there's a massive pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Now, what's interesting is like, if you look at the MLB's pension plan, they have much more of an employer-employee relationship, much like us yeomen that is dictated by maximums from the IRS. And the MLB's pension plan is based on years of service. So if it's Pujols or some journeyman, they're all kind of treated the same as far as retirement goes. The reason that the PGA Tours is so advantageous is because it rewards you perform well, you get more into your retirement account. So, and there's really no cap on it, or the cap is much, much, much higher. It's a huge value add to their members. And because professional golf is feast or famine, if you don't make the cut, you don't make money and you have a ton of expenses. You're flying from city to city, you're staying in hotels, you're paying the caddies a flat rate if you don't make the cut. So, some of the guys at the bottom of the money list, if they're having a tough year, there is no money coming in the door. Back in the 80s, when the money wasn't as good, I think this was a program that was like, hey, these guys need to be able to put some money away as independent contractors. And then now you fast forward to the last five, 10 years, the money's so big that now it's an awesome, awesome program. So I've always found that really interesting that they were able to get that approved, even though technically these guys are independent contractors. Yeah, and it's not something you hear about very often. And I think it's probably worth noting as well that there is also a champion's tour. So not only is there a pension plan for people that they can take from 45 to 450, there's also a tour that they can, an off-ramp for them, I guess, after the PGA Tour itself. So somewhere for them to buy their trade. Because I think that's something that you hear about sports a lot. A, it's a short career for most other sports. And B, you feel pretty lost once you've finished playing. Whereas golf, there is more longevity and there is also something for them to go and do if they so choose after they've finished on the PGA Tour. The Champions Tour is, to me, fascinating because a lot of guys, they'll lose their card at 42. But to make it to the Champions Tour, it used to be you had to have three wins. I think you have to have five PGA Tour wins now, or you've made X amount of money. But they've had to tighten up the eligibility. There's also a PGA Champions Tour qualifying. But a lot of guys will basically wait and continue to work on their game. They won't take their retirement money because it's either or. If you start taking that retirement money, you can only play in, I think, like seven or eight Champions Tour events per year. So a lot of guys will sit and wait. And when they turn 50, they hit the Champions Tour and they start going gangbusters. A guy right now at the top of the Champions Tour money list, Steven Alker, he has made more money this year on the Champions Tour than he made in his career as a professional golfer up until the age of 49. So I don't know what he did to get his game ready for the Champions Tour, but I find that fascinating that he was able to have a second act or be a late bloomer or whatever you want to call it. It's getting really competitive out there. You've got Jim Furyk, David Toms, who else? Bernhard Langer is a perennial killer on that tour. There's money to be made for these guys after the age of 50. So I think we framed the, the PGA Tour as it is today really, really well. Now let's get to the GC part of these rival tours, namely the SGL and PGL, or that's the acronyms that they go by. Maybe you can just flesh out the core argument that these tours are making two players and why they think there's an opportunity to disrupt the game. I want to rewind about a year. The initial rival league was the PGL, so the Premier Golf League. And when they kind of announced and rumbling started to eke out, there was a rival golf league starting. They were working with the Saudi-backed league, so the Saudi State Investment Fund. And I think the Saudis were one of many investors in the PGL. So the PGL said, cool, we're not going to work with them anymore. The model of the PGL was, you know, they use the example of F1. And what we've talked about is there are too many golf events. And because of that, the top players in the world don't face off. So similar to what Greg Norman tried to do in 94, 
let's have 20 events across the world and it will be the top 40 golfers. And they will play for a prize money of $20 million per tournament, no cut events. And let's also, while we're at it, throw in a team aspect. That opens up the opportunity for top players, say Phil and Tiger, to partner with a team owner, say an equipment company or another brand and create basically a team of four or a team of six, but four guys, their scores are going to count. And so at the end of the 20 tournament season, there will be a individual winner and there will also be a team payout. In some ways, that model as an avid golf fan, that sounds pretty interesting. That is something that I, I would watch. If we were starting from scratch, I think that answers some of the issues that the tour has. And then at the end of each season, there would be similar to the Premier League, a relegation, whatever, let's say the bottom 10 guys in the standings, they're going back to the PGA Tour or they're out of the PGL and then they're going to recruit the top young talent. So guys that have just come on the scene, like right now, Cameron Young, you know, he's a rookie on tour. He's making a splash. Will Zalatoris, another guy. Those guys would then get basically drafted into the 10 or 12 teams in the PGL. So that was kind of the original model a year ago. PGL, there was a schism. The SGL broke off. Well, the SGL just took the model and they beat the PGL to market with it. I think the PGL was trying to back channel with the PGA Tour and say, hey, we would like to work together with you on this. But PGA, they're not going to give up their turf and say, what are we going to become like the feeder league to this PGL? So there was a stalemate there, I believe. SGL, Super Golf League, very creative name. This is the league that you're hearing a lot about these days. And that is fully backed by private investment fund of Saudi Arabia. The CEO, it's called Live Golf, is the name of the entity, is headed by Greg Norman currently. And they have basically struck a deal with the Asian Tour, which is a subsidiary of, I believe, the DP World Tour, which is for everyone out there, the Euro Tour. And they've basically said, we're going to do the same model. We're going to have these no-cut team events, massive purses, and... We'll try to recruit the best golfers to come play in these events. So that didn't really get off the ground. And mainly because there's a lot of blowback for Saudi Arabia's involvement. And the idea is that this is sports washing. Saudis are trying to improve their brand on the world stage. And similar to what you're seeing in soccer, and you you could argue F1, they're trying to use sports to improve the brand. Let's put that aside for now. I want to get the facts out on what they're trying to do. So Because of that blowback, the Live Golf has adjusted and said, cool, this year, we're just going to have a collection of events. The first one, the first Live Golf event will be in June. It's scheduled in Centurion Club. There's rumors there will be some Trump properties across the US and some other courses have been floated for, I think it's seven or eight events, a collection of events. I think they're trying to get some reps and figure out what they're doing. So it's not really the whole league model. Apparently, they're still going to have the team aspect, but Right now, they're kind of putting the call out to anybody and everybody. Why don't you apply to play in our golf tournament in June? And there were several PGA Tour and Euro Tour players that applied for releases from the PGA Tour, I think last week or last month, and they got denied by the tour. And so again, the tour owns the media rights to card-carrying members. So if they want to be in a No Lang Up YouTube video, we have to go and say, hey, we want to work with Max Homa and have him on an episode of Strapped or whatever. We have to go ask the tour to do that. Usually they grant those requests and they've made an executive decision that they're not going to kick the can down the road. They have denied players' requests for a release to play in this event. And they've said there will be punishment. They haven't said what kind of punishment. There will be punishment if you choose to go. Some of the names that have been floated, 
Sergio Garcia, Lee Westwood, I think Kevin Na, Jason Kokrak, some of these guys, we'll see what happens if they decide to test the tour. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how this is going to play out. But the argument is that, hey, we're independent contractors. You guys, this is restraint of trade in a way. You guys aren't allowed to tell us we can't go play in this tournament. You can't take away my membership rights. The PGA Tour is arguing, well, we're basically a trade association. We'll mandate to set the rules for members. And you've given us that power. If you don't like that, then you're going to have to use the policy board and we're going to have to change the rules. But we're not going to grant you these leases because we think it will be harmful to the PGA Tour and to the rest of our membership. So as I understand it, and we have a message board at NLU that's great. It's called The Refuge, where our members chat. And there's a lot of board lawyers on the message board. And so one of them, called Mr. Duffer, he had, I think, a very succinct way that he broke it down. There's no telling how this legal stuff will play out. But he said that the PJ Tour is technically a trade association. The players are basically like businesses. Like a normal business in an association, each is independent. Trade associations may ordinarily and legally set membership criteria to belong to its organization and can set criteria that would warrant expulsion from the association. The problem lies when a trade association, A, begins to look and operate like a business, and B, that business obtains dominant market power. Then, if its membership policies are intended to obtain or maintain that market monopoly power, they may be illegal and unenforceable. The argument is, does the PGA Tour have monopoly power? Their argument would be no. This Live Golf is working with the Asian Tour. You guys are free to go play in it, but we're free to say that this is detrimental to our tour. You can't come back and have the same benefits of a PGA Tour player. The players may argue if they do choose to go play and then try to come back, I'm going to claim hardship. You guys are being unfair. This is restraint of trade. You guys are acting like a monopoly. And so that'll go to civil court with an injunction. I'm not sure how fast we'll figure out what happens or if there will even be a lawsuit. But the tour saying that we are not going to release players is kind of a line in the sand. So over the next, I'd say, three, six, nine months, we're going to see this play out. And it'll be very interesting. Where the tour is going to struggle, let's set the legal stuff aside. When you boil it down, what is the tour doing to try to keep players on the PGA Tour? They're throwing money at them. They're increasing purse sizes. What's going to happen, though, or what could happen is if Justin Thomas and Rom start seeing, or not even those guys, let's go down the list a little farther. Let's say like Billy Horschel, and I'm just pulling random names out. I'm not saying these guys are going to do this, but if they start seeing Richard Bland and Robert Garrigus and maybe some up-and-coming college player that leaves college early, go play in these live events and win millions of dollars, and these guys are ranked in the hundreds or 200s in the world, and they're grinding it out on the PGA Tour for 100K or 500K for a top 20, they're going to start saying, hey, man, you know, at the end of the day, like I'm trying to make a living. That's going to be difficult for the tour to overcome. And when you look at who's backing the SGL and Live Golf, they've got runway. They're basically saying, cool, we have a massive war chest, billions of dollars that we're willing to float this tour as it gets on its feet. And we can just kind of wait it out. And maybe we'll wear down some of these mid-tier players and then the mid-tier players go. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, wait a second. Some of the top-tier players, they're grinding on the PJ Tour, and they could be winning these events because the strength of the field isn't as good. That's all projection. I'm just kind of playing it out. But that's, I think, the strategy that the Live Golf squad is trying to put into practice. I think the really interesting data point, you know, we talked a lot about how the PGA Tour has and is continuing to pay its best players more and more money. 
And we talked about the Players' Championship this year being the biggest purse ever at $20 million. Now, the first Live Golf event is $20 million or pounds. And so that's the difference that we're talking about here. It's how much money do you want? And I think the carrot, as far as I can see it from the tour's perspective, is history. You know, you see a lot of the top players saying, I want to be able to compare myself to Tiger or to Arnie or to Jack Nicklaus and Live Golf or the PGL, the SGL. They don't have that carrot as it stands today. They have money that they can throw at the tour, as well as a slightly more interesting product, perhaps from a fan's perspective. Yes, exactly. But it's worth noting that not all the top tournaments are run by the PGA Tour. So the majors specifically. I don't know this, but I got to think that the PGA Tour is leaning on their partners, you know, their friends up at Augusta. And Seth Waugh, the president of the PGA of America, came out this week and fully supporting the PGA Tour, right? The USGA. I don't know if they've made any announcements yet, but it's what can they legally do to ban players if they go play? And can those other organizations do the same thing? Or is it all just rhetoric? So the PGA Tour, I think, is leaning on both their partners and other golf organizations. And also, I think probably up in Washington, trying to lobby Congress a little bit on, hey, this isn't nationalistic stuff. Hey, it's not good if the Saudis control the pinnacle of golf. This has been, a, in their argument, a well-run American organization for years and years. It supports a ton of charities around the country. You know, we can't allow this to happen. I don't know if they have the legal right to do that, but we're going to find out. The interesting part of this, though, is it's like the line from True Detective, Russ Cole, time is a flat circle. These arguments have just come up from 68 and into 83 and 94. And here, what happens is the membership gets bloated. You know, the tiger tax, the top player, the top five, 10 players are subsidizing the rest of these guys to come and have a top 40 and win 100K. And some of them are looking around and saying, hey, I should go over here and actually get what I'm worth in this upstart league. Phil Mickelson, he's been notably outspoken. His whole point was this is a unique opportunity to reshape professional golf and they are not monetizing me properly. He was saying that they're leaving $10 billion, $20 billion on the table. And I don't know where he's getting that number, hence the PGA Tour releasing kind of the financials of 55% going to players. But I think what he's saying is, hey, I want control of my media rights. Maybe I could sell those as NFTs or I could work directly with partners. Like when the match happens, when it's Tiger versus Phil, that's an exhibition match. Those guys have to get a release from the PGA Tour. And you bet that the PGA Tour is getting their pound of flesh, you know, off of that TV deal. And, and they're getting paid out a seven-figure check probably to release Tiger and Phil from their media rights to go and do events like that. It's an interesting kind of position that professional golf is in right now. From a strategic perspective, it's really interesting. It just really reminds me of the Hamilton-Helmer counterposition thing of the PGA Tour has built its business model around, obviously, the bulk of its revenue comes from media as well as advertising and sponsorship. Those stakeholders want the best players playing as much as possible for as long as possible, which lends itself to many events over four days playing the same format. For them to turn that around and give the players more time off or to give the fans more innovative formats, they have to nuke their business model and completely change it. So it's really interesting to see what will happen here. You nailed it right there. They're hamstrung by year. It's like turning a cruise ship. Another one of my associates, Mr. DJ Pie, he made the analogy of the electrical grid. He was like, yeah, you know, I bet like if you talk to a bunch of like energy companies, they'd love to start from scratch can we just build the grid over? But you can't do that because you can't turn off everyone's lights for two years. So then all of a sudden, you're just tacking on 
in this case, PIP programs and Comcast business top tens. And you're absolutely right. The model is we have to have a tournament every week or 45 of them because that's our mandate to the players. That's also the one lever that they pulled for years and years is let's get more sponsors. Let's get more tournaments that sponsors can attach their name to. But then you start to look at the broadcast numbers, the Nielsen stuff, and some of the numbers in off weeks are not good. The majors, the top tier tournaments, you get the best players in the world going head to head. The numbers look pretty good. But like what you said, it's about revenue wise, what one fourth of the NFL. And if you look at the ratings, it is significantly less than that on a weekly basis, especially like in January, February, when they're going up against the playoffs and stuff like that. So at some point, do these sponsors of some of these lower tier events say, hey, man, I'm paying millions of dollars here and I'm just not getting the eyeballs. And I think golf has always hung its hat on, well, the demographic, it might not be as big, but it's really good. It's affluent, male, it's perfect for your work days and your finance companies and kind of high net worth individuals and C-suite folks are watching these tournaments. But at some point, it's like, well, hold on a second. If there's a rival golf league and they start to get some momentum, what does that mean? Do the broadcast partners say, hey, wait a second, like, is there an opt-out language? Can we go and, and work with that tour? Or do we have to exclusively work with the PGA Tour on broadcasting? So I don't know the answer to those questions, but if the game gets split and half the good players are playing over here and another half are playing over here, it could get interesting. And just a tie bow in this section, it's worth saying, and correct me if I've got this wrong, that it's still pretty early in this process. I think the SGL itself doesn't have a broadcast partner for the events that they're putting on. A lot of the details around these tours aren't fully fleshed out or aren't even fleshed out at all. And so when you think about kind of the risks of the PGA Tour, it's a massive boat coming down the river, but it is still maybe a fair way off. From my perspective, they are building the plane while flying it at Live Golf. And you can laugh at that, but the problem is they have a massive runway to take off. They just have a blank check. They have stumbled all over themselves the last six months. They've gotten beat up. Greg Norman's been dragged a bunch for his commentary and, and all kinds of stuff. They don't have a broadcast partner. They've said they're probably going to put it on YouTube to start. But again, where this is interesting is that the goal of that tour, they don't have to make money. It's a brand marketing play for the Saudi investment fund. And so when you're going up against that as a PJ tour, which is a well-run business, whether or not you like the way they run the business or the product they put out, it's very, very, very well run. And they're buttoned up and they have a ton of experience doing it. They have to make money and they have to make money for the players and they have to make money for the charities and they have to keep the broadcast partners happy and they have to keep fans happy so that the ratings stay up. So they have a lot more established stakeholders, whereas the Live Golf, they can kind of do whatever they want. I have my differences with the PGA Tour. Do I think it's a good idea if the history of golf or the preeminent golf tour is a marketing arm of a foreign government? No, I don't think that's good. And I don't think that's what the PGA Tour is. And I think you nailed it earlier with one thing that's great about golf is the history of it, that all these guys, a lot of these tournaments have been around since 1960. The Pebble Beach Pro-Am, the Waste Management, all the majors, there's tons of history. And so as someone who watches golf and comments on golf, that creates this rich canvas to talk about and compare players from different generations and fun facts. And all of a sudden, it's like, man, now we're just going to like blow it all up and it's just going to be a massive cash grab. Yeah, I think that some of the team aspects and seeing the top guys face off, having some offseason, all of that is attractive to me. But in its current form with Live Golf, it's tough for me to get excited about it long term. 
often in these discussions, the risks is the hardest part to drag out. But I think here it's just very clear what the risk is and what the biggest risk is. I think on the flip side, if we assumed the tour successfully navigates this period of kind of the upstart leagues, what's kind of the path to the tour becoming a bigger, more influential business than it is now? Where does it get its growth from? The commissioner kind of called it out in his memo back in November, December, which is increasing the official marketing partners, those pools. So for them specifically, their bottom line, I think that's a big initiative. I think sports gambling is a huge initiative. FanDuel, DraftKings kind of go down the list. They're all advertising on the broadcast. They're all, some of them are official marketing partners. But I also think the PJ Tour has its points bet. So it's starting to show odds on TV. Where does that go? Do they start to make money on the VIG? A little cut of gambling. Does it become like, hey, you have to bet through our in-house sports book. I think they're eyeing that as a huge boon probably over the next 10 years, 20 years, as every other league is. Again, you could argue the pros and cons of that, but it's kind of a fact now that sports gambling is being legalized in more and more states in the US and already over across the pond with you. It's been there for a while. The right stuff is kind of locked in. The PJ Tour is always talking about growing the game. And sometimes I get frustrated because it feels like they're always in search of this like white whale of like the millennial the young person that just flipped on CBS and was like, oh my God, this is so much fun to watch. They're trying to do like neat and cool stuff that attracts the young golf fan. And sometimes they do that at the expense of turning off their avid fan. I would hope they realize sometimes like, hey, this is a niche sport. We need to take care of our core fan. How can we do that? Well, one thing I would love to see them invest in and it could be incremental revenue is digital broadcast. So PGA Tour Live is now run by ESPN+. Plus. You know, how can you make that where I can see what the Masters does with their digital broadcast? I can see every shot. I can see every hole. I can follow. I can build a group and watch them hit every shot. So they've been working on some stuff. That digital broadcast has gotten a lot better already with ESPN+. Plus. They're working on some of that with the Players' Championship where they have a camera basically on every hole. Say, I want to watch Max Homa. I just want to watch his round. And I don't want to deal with announcers. I don't need it. You mentioned Formula One earlier. They, as I understand it, have signed a contract with Netflix. Well, Netflix are on the ground at the moment filming what would effectively be Drive to Survive for golf. They're trying to copy the playbook, particularly in that respect. Formula One had a lot of issues attracting younger fans. They kind of lost them for a good decade or so and now have successfully found them. And a lot of that has been traced back to the Netflix series. And I think golf is going to employ the same model and see how that goes. Thank you for reminding me of that. I think that's a one, good for the tour and it's about time. But one thing they've really struggled with is because it's a member-run organization, they don't criticize the players a lot. So there's some guys that will have some spotty use of the rules or cavalier with the rules. And the tour in the past has kind of shied away from talking about it or the broadcast hasn't brought it up, things like that. Whereas like you look at F1, they lean into the drama. The reporters ask difficult probing questions. They make Christian and Toto. They make those guys have a press conference together. They put them in situations where there will be drama and they kind of play to that. So I'm interested to see if Netflix is able to bring the tour who's been very conservative with how they portray the players. Because in the tour's mind, these guys are class acts. Let's make them look as buttoned up as possible so that they're very sponsorable. And that's kind of in the image of Tiger, who is basically just a bit of a robot. He's an unbelievable golfer, but there's not a ton of personality. So a lot of the tour players, it's like they should be leaning into some of these guys' personalities. I would love to see them almost build some of these guys up as the villains, create some drama. So I think leaning into modernizing the broadcast and making it more attractive to 
younger audiences. There's ways to do that. I don't think they've done a great job of that in the past, but I'm with you. The Netflix thing is very, very intriguing. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch. So we normally end these discussions by asking what you've learned and what lessons you might have for investors or operators having followed the business or the sport for the time that you have. What stands out in your mind as kind of the most surprising thing that you might share with someone who maybe is newer to golf for the PGA Tour itself? I didn't know much about 501c6 and trade associations and member-run organizations. And I think that the structure of the PGA Tour is just really interesting and unique. And it's complex. You got to really dive in. There's a lot of good stuff on the internet. I mentioned the Adam Shupak book, the Dean Beeman, Golf Striving Force. Like That's a really good primer on the history of the tour. There was a really good ESPN Outside the Lines in 2013 on the charity stuff. So I find it very interesting to dive into that stuff. And rarely do you have, and a lot of the businesses you talk about are straight public companies. This is one, and you don't see a ton of them, that has a rich and long history of being a member-run private organization. Seeing how they've improved that and grown that over the years is really interesting. And you asked me earlier, like, where can they find growth? And growth is always like the key. Sometimes I think that maybe golf in general, maybe it's just not a growth sport. Maybe it shouldn't be. Like, I know that's not what Titleist or Callaway or other companies want to hear, but maybe it's just there is a really, really, really diehard group of avid golfers and people that want to play golf. That's all they want to do. And let's cater to them. It may be a little complacent and that could get upset, but we're going to have to see what happens. If they're able to fight off another breakaway tour, it's almost like it's on the calendar. 1968, 1983. We should have seen it coming, to be honest. <laughs> 94, 2022. All right. Put on the calendar for 2050 that there's going to be another breakaway. We'll schedule another one for them. We'll come back and see how it went. Neil, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much for breaking down the PGA Tour with me. I would recommend all of No Laying Up's content to anyone who wants to learn more about golf or just wants to be inspired by the nice places that they go and the good things they talk about. So Neil, thank you so much. Dom, thank you. It was a pleasure. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 